In the name of God, Creator, Redeemer, and Giver of Life. Amen. Good morning. Wonderful to see you all here. When I was growing up in Minnesota, and that's the way you gotta say it, Minnesota, my family observed the same civilizing ritual that families around the world have observed since the beginning of time. Each night we sat down around a family table for a home-cooked meal. It was at the dinner table that we kids learned how to listen to one another, how to speak up for ourselves. It was there that we learned that each of us had a place at the table, a place imbued with a particular set of values and aspirations and expectations. And it was there on a late autumn evening in 1972 that my mom made a surprising admission of weakness. She said it was getting more and more difficult for her to climb up and down the stairs at the state capitol building where she worked as a reporter. It was surprising because my mother never admitted to weakness of any kind. And then my dad said, do you think it's the multiple sclerosis? And my mom said, yes. And that was the first time I heard of my mom's diagnosis of MS. She was 47, I was 16, and that was the moment when a shroud descended over our house and stayed there for the next 33 years as my mother swam against a constant cyclical tide of physical and mental decline until her death in 2005 at the age of 80. You know, when the shroud of death hangs over a family, it changes everything. Some of my mom's many friends became more distant and self-conscious around her. They avoided the subject of her decline. They never asked my mom if she needed to talk about it. They called less often, they stopped coming around like they used to. But you know, if we're lucky, we have people in our lives that only become more devoted as we live under the shroud. Very few people would look at my mom's life and say that she was lucky, but she was lucky in one thing, and that was in love. Because for the next 33 years, she had the devoted attention of my father. As she went from using a walking stick to get around, to a pair of crutches, to a motorized scooter, finally to a nursing home bed where she lived the last 11 years of her life. My dad was ever with her, every day sitting with her, feeding her, dressing her, cleaning her, loving her all the way to the end. The Shroud of Death has a kind of clarifying effect on relationships, doesn't it? It can drive us apart or it can inspire a deeper devotion to one another. For most of my career as a parish priest, I've witnessed countless displays of heroic devotion under the shroud of death. Spouses of 40, 50, 60 years accompanying one another into the darkest times of despondency and sorrow and weakness. For me, it's the the best argument for the institution of marriage. That when the chilling shadow of death comes near, 
our marriage vows can take us into the deepest reaches of love. And that, by the way, that gets us to the root meaning of the word devotion, which is to act out or fulfill a vow. Whether our vows are affirmed at the altar of marriage or simply promises made between great friends, the shroud of death will test our promises. And most of us, like my father, will have proven our capacity for devotion. This morning we witnessed that kind of devotion, the kind that blossoms under the shroud of death. We find ourselves in Bethany, and we're told it's six days before Passover. So that's the setting. It's the week of preparation before the people of Israel gather around the dinner table and rehearse that old story, as they do every year, of how the angel of death swooped through Egypt, killing all the firstborn sons, and yet sparing the Jews' lives. So there we are, seated at the family table with Martha and her sister Mary and their brother Lazarus, and Jesus is there too with the disciples, and above them the shroud of death has quietly unfurled as Jesus makes clear his plans to enter Jerusalem for Passover. Mary is the first one to notice that shroud of death. Everyone else is too caught up in themselves and their fantasies to recognize what it means for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Mary, the quiet one, the observant one, the devoted one, it's Mary who can see beyond herself long enough to catch sight of the shroud, and her heart breaks open. She takes down a large alabaster jar, jar containing an extremely expensive perfume called nard. This is an essential oil that's been harvested from flowers in the eastern Himalayas and carried across the known world through present-day Nepal, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and the Jordan to end up in a stone jar on Mary's shelf. It's worth about $50,000 in today's money. She cracks the jar against the stone floor. The sound rifles through the room like the crack of a bullwhip. And the most expensive aroma any of them have ever known fills the room. As if preparing his body for burial, Mary pours the oil out onto Jesus' feet and wipes her hair with it. It's outrageous. It's profligate. It's excessively wasteful, like love itself. Soon, the blood of Christ will be poured out in just this same way, an act of reckless devotion, an act of death as an act of love. 1830 years later, Abraham Lincoln stood in the middle of a massive cemetery at Gettysburg, the shroud of death hanging low and just about smothering the nation. And in that speech, he reflected on this connection between death and devotion. He called upon his audience to rededicate themselves to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion 
to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. Death and devotion. This is why our religion of love so often finds itself reflecting on death. Death breaks our hearts open like that alabaster jar. Our love pours out with the fragrance of devotion, with the force of love. Life steals the victory and death loses its sting. But there is breakage. Christ is broken the way that alabaster jar is broken. In the midst of our pain and grief, we are broken the way mourning is broken. We break into joy. Judas sees that jar of nard as merely the means to an end. He doesn't see love, he sees a commodity. He only sees utility and self-interest. He can imagine the weight of that 300 denarii in his purse, the sense of power and agency those coins would give him. What a waste, he says. Which is exactly what we might expect from someone who cannot yet comprehend the extravagant nature of God's love. How much God's love shines in every leaf of spring and every molecule of carbon, how God delights in this creation, how God pours out love the way sun pours out light. If all you've ever known about love is purely transactional, if the only love you've known has been carefully measured out and exchanged for commodities of equal value, then the boundless, wasteful, profligate love of God can simply be beyond comprehension. This morning we find Paul also sitting under the shroud of death in prison, reflecting on the question of devotion. He seems to know he doesn't have much time left. As many of us do when we're at the end of our lives, he pulls out his resume, his curriculum vitae, and he drags on himself a little bit. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet, he says, of all that, all of that is garbage. Literally, the word means the table scraps fed to the dogs when compared to his life's work of devotion to Christ. Paul's throwing his life away. He's cracking open the alabaster jar of his life as an act of love in imitation of Christ. That's all that matters to him now. All the honorifics, all the achievements, all the many pages of his impressive resume meant nothing in light of the love of God in Christ Jesus. His only prayer is that his death will inspire our devotion, just as Jesus' death 
inspired his. So today is the last Sunday of Ordinary Lent. Next week is Palm Sunday and the beginning of Holy Week. Once again, we're going to rehearse, as we do every year, these stories about the shroud of death, about devotion and betrayal, about forgiveness and reckless love. We'll join Jesus one last time at that dinner table, and we will watch once again as blood is poured out like wine. And as we take our familiar places around that family table, our capacity for devotion will once again deepen and mature. One more meal that forms our souls. One more chance to know the infinite, life-affirming source of God's love. Amen.